Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred and I were debating about how much we and other people like us are worth. Apparently it's $28 <laughs> an hour and 28 cents. Well, yeah, I, I was talking to a colleague the other day and, and reminded me of a story of years and years and years ago. I was doing a, a, a webinar series inside a company and, and saw this this. A presenter, she did an absolutely brilliant presentation. I thought this would be such a great message to bring across into our uh, program and all that good stuff. And she said, "Yeah, that'd be fun." And I have to, you know, check with my boss and do that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and she worked for some government organization. And she said, "The hangup is I have to figure out how to enter that time on my time card." And she didn't want to take a day off to, you know, or do that kind of thing, which I understood. So she said. I have to apologize. I have to ask you to pay for my time and then I can do it. Okay, no problem. And then she said, but I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you um, that they want me to charge you $28 or or $25 and 28 cents. Is is that what you're getting paid? He goes, oh no, that's not what I got it paid, but that's what they think I'm worth for an hour. (laughs) So that's the alley, right? To clarify. Yeah, no, yeah, and it was I. But she, I asked her, "Do you get more than that?" And she goes, "Oh yeah, I make you know, I make more than that on my paycheck." But that's what they told me to charge you for my time. And I, and then I didn't. I bit my tongue because I knew she was working in an extremely large bureaucracy. So I thought, all right, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever, it's well worth it. You're. Your message and your presentation was brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. So we we went ahead and did that, and um, um, and it's a whole different story of how long it took us to actually get a payment to them that they accepted. It's like good grief, what kind of bureaucracy is this? But it brought up the topic we were, and I said, oh, we need to record. Yes, you know, well, what are we worth? And it, it's it's way more than twenty eight dollars and twenty five cents or twenty eight whatever. Well, maybe. I mean, there's some people that are in our profession that 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 might be a stretch for them. Right. I mean, we've got to be careful with bureaucracies as well, because sometimes those those internal hourly rates are, are, are while well, they're expressed in terms of dollars, they're sort of they represent some other metric that often is only communicated internally within a small group. But either way, yeah, it's it's more than twenty eight dollars. <laughs> per hour um that is if you're doing your job i should we should probably clarify that there are plenty of reliability engineers we've come across who aren't worth any money they're getting paid well yeah it's it was a guy it was a he was a, a part of a prime contractor to a military organization and you know designing equipment and building equipment for him and his comment on reliability <clears throat> his comment on reliability was well, we just assume everything's in the flat part of the bathtub curve. So every we only use exponential. And I said, well, have you ever checked that it's not? Oh, why bother? We assumed it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, you're not worth $28. There's no, probably a no. negative value there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're actually costing your organization money by your assumption. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's all, it's all. I think I do think too many reliability engineers can some can tend to. I don't know. Focus on saying how valuable they are without explaining it, even to themselves. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm really valuable because all, all, I'm the only one who knows how to do Weibull analysis. That's what makes me really valuable. And we know that that's just part of the conversation. What decisions is your amazing Weibull analysis helping that saves the, the organization tons of money or? or skips time or gets you ahead of the design curve, so to speak. Um, And I think too many reliability engineers struggle to say, this is how I actually add value to to your organization. Because I think too many, when they sort of graduate into being a reliability engineer, are often lumped with inane tasks that the organization just wants someone to get done, as opposed to um, actually help design or manufacture something amazing i think we were talking about that now most recent podcast where we talked we were talking about what does a reliability engineer do i think the trigger for that conversation was someone reaching out to you fred who says well i'm just asked to do parts count predictions or or something you run this test as you know just step and repeat this test into an environmental chamber of some sort and it's like you know it's not helpful it's not right. satisfying in it, or in any other point of it, but the, yeah, it's a, it, some part of it is the organizational culture of how do they mm-hmm. onboard somebody? Well, we got, we got to keep you busy. So we're going to have you ask you to do this yet. It's, it's one of those where that person needs to say, you know, I'm going to follow this report and where does it go? I'm going to go talk to that person. Is this useful or not useful? And that takes, you know, getting up out of the lab and, head to the to wherever the destination is and go ask some questions go poke around but if you if you accept doing just what you're doing well then you're going to keep putting pro- prototypes into this chamber and record the results and email it someplace and it, i don't know about you chris but that's not a satisfactory job but it's also blind to what difference does it make kind of thing mm-hmm. I mean, there are scenarios where if you have a young reliability engineer go into an organization, but he or she is part of a, you know, works for a good senior reliability engineer, that senior reliability engineer might say, okay, for the first six months, you're going to do environmental testing so you can learn about what that's all about. But mm-hmm. that's part of a bigger remit where hopefully someone knows what the strategy is, what the philosophy is. And part of the um, stepping stones is to actually gain hands-on experience with some of the activities, but it's part of a bigger remit. There's grand plans. That person's going to finish that six months worth of um, purgatory with a good understanding (laughs) of what it's all about. But then the next step would be to say, okay, this is why you're doing it. Uh, You need to, this is why you need to know how to do that. Um, what do you think about when you should do environmental testing? When should you not? There's nothing wrong with a brand new engineer doing, let's just call it um, menial reliability engineering tasks in as part of a bigger plan. But it's those scenarios where you have that poor single reliability engineer who is anointed a reliability engineer and they say, okay, off you go down to that your room down the hall and just do testing until your thumbs fall off. Yeah, or just crank out these Weibull plots and we'll tell you which one's useful when we see it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? So, uh, and I think that was the, we were described, that describes the person who reached out to you recently to say, well, what the hell do we do? Yeah. Well, well, part of it is, is also, I think you were getting on it early on is, well, how does a person articulate their value is they say, well, I'm, I'm helping the team reduce the failure rate. And so that'll reduce the warranty cost. So that's a good thing, right? That adds value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how much, <laughs> you know, how much value are you adding? Uh, how do you, and you ran through this with me is way back in the class, in the class I taught at Maryland, it was, you need to be able to quantify it. You know, the, all these other organizations, part of the team come in, they say, well, if, if we don't uh, have this feature in here, we're going to lose a 10th of our, our, our market share. And that's worth, you know, X amount of dollars. You know, if we ship late, it's a million dollars a day of added cost. And we lose this percentage of the market share and that's ding, ding, ding. Here's how much money we're going to lose and how much longer before we break even or make a profit or whatever. And the reliability guy says, well, we, we reduce the failure rate by, you know, a little bit. And so that adds value, right? And I'm like, well, you're not providing a compelling argument. And failure rate's the simplest one. There's all kinds of other ways that we add value if, if you recognize it, if you actually articulate it. Or, or better yet, if somebody says, hey, that was a really great suggestion. It goes, well, how great? <laughs> how much was that worth to you? How much time did it save you? How much uh, energy did it save you? How much uh, f- you know, future savings do you expect it's going to create? And, and get it written down. And I got dragged into that kicking and streaming. I didn't, I thought this was crazy. I'm an engineer. I do engineering stuff. I don't do this finance stuff or, you know, and uh, it's transformative once you know what difference it makes and you just ask the question. So we just sent you this report and you liked it. That's great. What difference did it make specifically? (laughs) How did it help? I had one buddy that of mine that actually, you know, kind of knew my my spiel on all that stuff. And he goes, Well, it was a beautiful report. I really liked your your exquisite use of the Helvetica font. It was beautiful. <laughs> it just made my day. <laughs> I said, All right, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so in some of the courses I teach, I, I that smart lock example. Um and when I when I through many of my courses and I said, well, here, let's go, I go through 10 reasons to do reliability. And I talk about, we zoom into my smart lock and I, I think I've gone through this example with you before. With, and the smart lock obviously involves a circuit board, which is connected to an electric motor, usually by cables or wires. And most prototypes, if they go left, if they're able to get to be a prototype stage, uh, without any sort of reliability input or guidance, will temp- typically have wire cables, wires, cables connecting things like motors to PCBs with just simple solder joints. Because there's okay, it's just a prototype mentality. We'll 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 it will, we'll just solder things. We'll we'll connect it from A to B just to have what we call a proof of concept. We'll just make sure mm-hmm. it can work. Mm-hmm. But when I when I talk about that particular scenario, which happens a lot, the number of prototypes we've walked past where everything is connected by solder and cables and things like that, 
but they're supposed to be somewhat rugged in their final production prototype. We say, what if we think about it right now? What can we do right now to hopefully um, address what are the problems with salt? What problems might exist with solder joints? And when you think about a smart lock, having solder joints connecting wire cables from the motor to the PCB is a huge problem because when people slam the doors, these smart locks are going to be attached to um, that means the solder joints are the only structural things holding that wire, which is now flying about internally within the smart lock as it comes to, as that wire comes to a shuddering halt when that door slams shut. And solder joints aren't designed to do that. Solder joints are there to provide some structural support, but mainly to allow electricity to be conducted from one place to another. So when I go through the example, and for, for me, is a really good at coming up with these corrective actions where we actually design from the very start things like uh, or incorporate into our design, I should say, things like thicker cable to have a bigger surface area that makes contact with the uh, with the electric motor um, terminal, uh, internal clips to secure that cable or wire, have that cable or wire shorter at the PCB instead of having a solder joint have a socket a socket connector as opposed to a solder joint, which also allows it to be more easily assembled. And we also able at this stage to, um, if we're concerned about solder joints, we can put into our test regime things like um, inspection of, of those particular uh, solder joints we might be concerned about. So that long preamble is uh is from, is going to lead to a question I'm about to put back on you, Fred. When I, when I run that example and say, look at these wonderful corrective actions, which are borderline free if we put them in our first design, and everyone can say, yeah, that's great. We can do these things. They're borderline free. We can clearly see from our, our in engineering mindset how that will make our smart lock that much more robust. And again, if we do it in our first design, it's that robust smart lock is now essentially free. How do you put that dollar figure you're talking about onto those corrective actions we embed in our first design so they're never allowed to become problems? Yeah, it's one of the dilemmas is that it, it's hard to put on a spreadsheet someplace in the financial, you know, in the profit loss statements or all those kind of things, things that don't actually occur. Yes, right? that's that's what we're getting at. <laughs> But backing up from that, and it's similar to what you and I talk about when we get questions about, you know, setting up a test or I'm writing this, this study or this thing or whatever, we almost universally ask, so what are you trying to learn? What are you trying to evaluate? What are you trying to do? So the, in this circumstance, with, with when you want to estimate a value of some action that uh, is essentially very inexpensive early on in a program to implement these changes is well, what's important to the program, you know, and smart lock, let's say it's on a it's being sold to Lowe's and Home Depot and other, uh, you know, home care, home centers and stuff like that. It's becoming a consumer product and almost universally is the, the consumer products have a seasonality to them. You know, we're coming into the prime season for this, this uh, marketplace for when people do home updates and repairs. It's, it's it's not a terribly in, a huge incentive to leave your front door open for 45 minutes while you install a new smart lock in the middle of January during in, in the northern hemisphere when it 
you know, windy and snowing and the kids are saying it's freezing and, or vice versa for down in Australia, if the middle of the summer and all the, the critters and insects are flying in and it's hot mm-hmm. and humid and you know, it's equally bad, but there's seasonality to lots and lots of different products. So time to market might be the, the key thing. And then I, I, I highly recommend is go to that program manager that says time to market is our, you know, we have to focus on the schedule. We, we can't delay it. And says, well, why can't we delay it? What's the ramification of doing that? And it almost leads, always leads to money. Well, we lose share, cost money to keep the lab going and so on. And then say, you know, we probably would have found these, there's some chance that these issues left unattended today would show up later in the program. And a, a seasoned or a, an experienced program manager go, well, yeah, the reason we've delayed programs in the past is because we find some fatal flaw or some feature doesn't work, or you put a smart lock together and, and we found out after testing it for two weeks, like two days before we're ready to ship, that you only get to use it three times and then it fails or some inane thing like that. <clears throat> It might not be the exact same issues that, you know, we're recommending you avoid. And it might be, it might be, this is from what we learned from the previous program, but it's, there's a cost associated with delaying a program. There's costs associated with a higher failure rate. There's costs associated with so on. And sometimes the same argument still applies. If we help them avoid a delay, that's going to cost them $10 million, for example, by doing a you know $100 change early in the program, it's still something that doesn't actually happen. And so the part of it is based on the understanding that there's a real probability we would have delayed the program if we hadn't fixed these early. Because if we had ignored them, experience tells us that we would get them, we would find them later. In worst case, we'd find them after it gets into the market. So it's applying a bit of logic, a bit of, you know, what if kinds of stuff, applying basic common sense to it and saying, you know, this saved you uh, having to lay out a hundred, you know, 10 million or $10 million. You you won't be able to claim all of that money because there's a probability that the existing design would have been just fine. So we can discount it. We can do stuff like that. Yet the first step is, always figure out, well, what is of value to the people that are assigning the attributes of, well, this is what that was worth to us. Um, the biggest one I ever got was, is it with dealing with a capacitor and, and getting the information. I didn't create the information, but finding the information that allowed them to make a decision that their general manager said that was worth a hundred million dollars. That piece of information to us was worth yeah. that much. You know, like, cool. <laughs> let me let me write that down. You know, you back and they sent me an, an email saying so. And so my boss was ecstatic with that. Yet he didn't give me a pay raise. I didn't get a percentage of it or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's interesting because um one of the things that you know you can argue as a reliability engineer is that well, if you if you engage me and I save your organization X million dollars. That's how much I'm worth, which is not an irrational argument in many cases. It's mm-hmm. like if you weren't there, you would not have saved HP hundred million. Is that HP? Yeah, 
Okay, so you would not have saved one hundred million dollars. HP would not have saved one hundred million dollars. So in that moment, your input was worth one hundred million dollars. Um, so you you can't say, well, I'll I'll take that hundred million dollars, or I'll split it with your fifty fifty. How's that? <laughs> so, yeah, because it's not in the bank anywhere. It's not like right. somebody had it piled up next to his desk and said, oh, okay, we don't have to spend that now. You can have it. No, it was yep. that would have come out of profit. That would have come out of the reserves. That would have come out mm-hmm. of warranty and stuff like that. So how do we put a dollar figure on how much you're worth? Well, that that's one way to do it. It's it's what you're actually worth. It's in some cases it the, the opposite occurs. Is the what's of value is is the cost reducing the cost of acquiring the next customer, improving customer satisfaction. For example, if we make a product that's head and shoulders above any other product out there, it'll get a brand loyalty such that you can charge a premium, such that you get a higher market share, you know, it's just more profitable. It actually creates real revenue, right? Mm-hmm. And, but it, it, in those circumstances, the rest of the team's also saying, hey, I chipped in on that. And so you're mm-hmm. contributing to it. It's You have to be more careful about what, you know, we said, hey, you need to tie down this cable in the smart lock. Um, or here's an, a failure mechanism, but you're, Almost, we're almost always working with electrical, mechanical, and software engineers, other folks, is, is that reliability-related activity. And what I'm getting at here is it's, I'm so, I put on my reliability engineering cape and my mask and I swoop into the meeting and save the day and they they forever are in awe of my superpowers. No. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't usually get as very much uh, perceived worthiness uh, or worth is share, share the benefit with the rest of that team, share the, the accolades with the rest of the team uh, is a much one safer strategy, also more productive because what we're really after is not that we fix this cable issue or this one wire flopping around is that we want the rest of that team to recognize there's a benefit to thinking through this reliability stuff right up front. Mm-hmm. It, the real value of the org, of what we do is enable other people to be very successful. Now, I'm saying the, that $100 million you saved wasn't just that, dis, that single activity or decision or whatever it is you did. That was obviously after potentially years of training that the organization invested in you or um <laughs> no there's more to that story that's, oh, that's the conversation I... yeah this is the conversation where the guy that called me was a colleague of mine when i worked in that particular division and he went mm-hmm. fred i'm not supposed to be talking to you and I'm like huh <laughs> <laughs> what is this no don't say my name <laughs> and i'm thinking Please. is he in some you know strange prison in some third world country and he he's, he'd smuggled the phone out of there or something. And he said they had like 50 people. It was all hands on deck trying to solve this problem and understand it. And he says, and, and the thing I could do that, that they couldn't do is call the vendor oh, and ask okay. them embarrassing questions. And so I called the vendor and they said, yeah, that can happen. This ceramic capacitor, the ceramic that's in there under the right, heating cycles and conditions is and it's very very sensitive if you heat it too fast too quick and too and it'll just explode it'll just blow up and then you have an open right it just blows the component off the board that happens 99 percent of the time if you do it 
if you have a pulse signal going into it, that's heating it up through an existing crack, it will change that dielectric ceramic material into a pretty good connect uh, conductor. So now you have a ceramic heater instead of a capacitor. And I thought, huh, okay, do you have evidence of that? And he goes, yeah, we studied it years ago and I can send you a paper, you know, kind of thing. But I got that because I called him and says, hi, I'm Fred from HP Corporate. I didn't tell him who I was or what rank I had or what position I had. I had no authority over whether that we bought their capacitors or not or anything else. And I was talking to their chief technical officer. So he was very willing to share the information. And then I went to the material scientists in the group that I was working in at corporate and said, you know, does this make sense? And one of them pulled out a book saying, oh, I didn't know they used that ceramic. Yeah, it'll do that. <laughs> and so I, after about two weeks of, you know, sorting out this, that, and the other thing, gathering this information, I called my buddy back and says, I'm still not allowed to talk to you, but this is what you need to know. And, mm -hmm. and it was, they were on the verge of, pulling a trigger on a major recall for this product line, which would they estimated it would cost them $100 million to do. And then this information came in and my buddy presented it to him and, 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 and they said, oh, okay, we can deal with that. Uh, let's not do a recall. Right. <laughs> and so that's where I got the credit for it. It was, it was a pivotal bit of information they didn't have. They were limiting themselves from the getting to it. So it wasn't years of study or any investment in me and so on it was through a back door some guy knew i could call somebody <laughs> was, right. now the real value absolute total actual value of that is that in the next couple of months and so we we told the story without describing their particular this one particular circumstances that capacitors can break and they can fail in all kinds of different ways we did a webinar on it and there was like a dozen different divisions contacted me, all very similar saying, you know, we're kind of embarrassed to be asking you this, but, and then went around and helped all these divisions do the troubleshooting of why their capacitors were cracking. And there was a range of different things they did. Yet within a couple of weeks, I became the capacitor failure expert in the company. Right. And so, it, and then each one of those divisions then gave us back, well, this is what that interaction was worth. So it was, it was the ripple effect <clears throat> that made the big difference that let people know that, yeah, one, it's safe to talk about failures Two, It's, it's, in, you need to identify and, and solve these things as you go. And if something happens in the field, understand what's really happening. What's the, do the thorough root cause analysis, fully understand the mechanism. The real value. I don't really know how many people got influenced by, all of those activities in all of these different divisions and all these different groups. But if, if we stand up and say, Ooh, I helped tie that cable down and the mechanical engineer is going to feel, you know, Hey, wait a sec. I'm the one that designed the, the clip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always share the value and look to the long term, And then I think your worth just gets elevated and amplified over and over again. And being able to articulate how, much money it saves, whether it's time to market or market share or avoiding a recall or whatever, that's all part of encouraging others to adopt a, a stronger or more proactive reliability culture. And, and at that point, the you may or may not ever get 
the, the bonus or the paycheck or all the other things that are more tangible worth, yet your resume is immensely stronger than it was if you just did what you're told and, and never asked any questions. Right. And the reality is that you can't just simply say, well, this is the value I've added. So that's how much you need to pay me because that's just right. a, a net net gain, a, a, well, a net gain of zero for the client you were trying to woo. And that yeah. client can be your employer. Yeah. Um so yeah, and it's it's not it's not quite as simple as that. You and so there needs to be some nuance there if you're talking about hourly rates or what have you. You just use the millions of dollars you've saved over the years to justify an increase. Um but it's very difficult, and I think engineers often struggle to find that right. Uh, this is how much you should pay me number, because um, it has to be subjective to an extent between minimum wage and what you actually the value you actually add to your organization. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Is that, but yet part of it is is that I mean the same equation works for everybody in the organization. Is that it's. It, there's a return on investment. People, you don't get hired to add, say, $100,000 a year so that you can provide that employer $100,000 in value, right? There's a return on investment. You you need to be re- returning more than, than what your pay and benefits are. Otherwise, they're losing money on you kind of thing. So there's, it's part of the, the trade of working for somebody and, and what your value is. It's, the issue I run into is that reliability engineers often don't see the value that they're creating and don't articulate it and make it clear that, yeah, they're adding a lot of value. Now, if you hit it out of the park and you get to save a ton of money, yeah, it's not directly related to your pay because they're going to say, well, the first three years you didn't do squats. So now you're on an average where you're almost breaking even or you're, you know, whatever. Yet it's, not just reliability, mechanical, everybody, all the other staff has to have a return on investment. Otherwise, this business model doesn't make much sense. So that only goes so far as to returning your, but if you're a consistently uh, making a difference above what your expected ROI is, whatever that value is, that in my mind, it's not a one-to-one relationship, but it, it generally good things will happen. You will be tasked with more responsibility. You will get access to programs earlier in the program. They know that if you're in the room, good things happen kind of thing on average. That's yeah. all good stuff. And it brings up the point though, is, is that our worth is not only attributed to what our pay grade is and salary. It's also how well, how what is your credibility within the organization? What is your your in a level of influence? You know who do, you, who and where? What meetings do you get invited to because they want you there? That has a whole lot of, of worth, uh, of as an element of worth to it. That you know, and it depends on what motivates an individual. Maybe they want the the fancy car spot, the parking spot out front, and they strive to be employer of the month over and over again. Whatever that well, is. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the smart lock example, I mean, it's impossible to put a dollar figure on it. You just need, you do need to speak to, yeah, you need to, do need to be able to speak to it though. So, for example, if your CEO, just say they sort of challenge you to demonstrate your worth 
You say, look, with this, oh, I'll give you an example. With this smart lock, I was I was at Payne who insisted that we do Famia training, and I was at Payne who insisted we do a robust Famia, and I was at Payne who took those people away uh, for for three days or four days, and I got a lot of pushback from it. But you know what? Let's focus on just one part of it. Look at look at what we did with the with the uh, wiring for the motor to the PCB, where as opposed to having to deal with this these issues. In the final design review, we actually designed these teeny tiny problems out of our out of our first design, so that we didn't have to clog up every single design review, or we didn't have to try and explain every test failure during the production process through uh, by uh, uh, by having to look at these really simple basic failures. We got rid of these basic failures really really early and allowed you guys to design an amazing smart lock, much less stress. Uh, it was much faster as a result. If you can have that sort of conversation with your CEO who challenges you, that CEO should be able to understand, oh, okay, yes, I get that. All those little things that, it's always the little things that clog up those production processes where when people don't think about it, you've got 6,000 action items in that final design review and they're all teeny tiny, but well, not all of them, but a lot of them are teeny tiny, but they can be teeny tiny and behind the engine in the engine base, you have to, <laughs> you have to, it's really hard to fix that teeny tiny problem because it's already been baked into the design yep. um, that you need to be able to find a succinct way of just telling your boss, this is what I do. Yes. So I, I get pushback at the start, perhaps in some cases, but here's an example of the stuff we came up, which might seem obvious, but, it wasn't going to happen until I made it happen with this familiar stuff I was doing or whatever. Insert yep. the uh, the activity that work that's applicable to your technology as we go. But um, you got to be that guy or girl. Yeah. It, it, well, part of it is understanding. Yeah, it's you know what what motivates that CEO? Is it just profit? Is it throughput? Is it you know uh, maybe it's employee turnover? If you it can demonstrate or link the activities of that FMEA is building a stronger team so that we're not competing for scarce resources against each other, but we are focused on, you know, together on solving the problems that that study identified. That changes the, the team building of the organization, the, the willingness to say, hey, we're all working together. And it's a, in my opinion, it's a more enjoyable work atmosphere. Definitely, we're, we're you know we're not playing politics internally. We're working together, and that might be of what's value to that CEO. So it's the hard part is especially if you don't really know somebody is understanding what motivates them. So the first thing you say is, well, it reduced the failure rate, and you follow that line, and they kind of cringe and go, well, I don't worry about that. And then say, you know, well, it does this, it does this, it does this, and look for the signals that that resonated, and then double down on it. Mm -hmm. That's more advanced, but you got to get in the practice of understanding that just doing your job is great. It's a thing to do. It gets you your paycheck and that may be of total value to you and your family. That's wonderful. Yet the, the ability of adding value to an organization is boundless and it spans the entire organization. And we haven't even talked about customers yet. You know, mm -hmm. they, they're making an investment in your product, that lock, and they want it to work. And it, you're completely invisible to them. 
mm-hmm. so they may not call up and say, hey, Fred, good job. You know, you, you saved me a you know, ton of money on this thing or, you know, ease of use or whatever it was. I really enjoy this product. Thank you. I don't get many calls like that. <laughs> so I don't get any calls like that. Yet, how do you, how do you articulate that if and, and be able to, to illustrate that these tasks led to these outcomes is often missing in the discussions I have with our peers. They say, well, of course it adds value, right? Well, how? Mm-hmm. What way? And and that worth of job satisfaction or of actually saving money for the organization or increasing profitability, increasing customer satisfaction. Um, those are all different ways of why what we do is of, of value. It, it creates worth. Um, and it's completely different than just your paycheck. Um, yeah, I actually, when I was at HP, I turned down a promotion because the, it would put me at the bottom of the rank uh, for the next group. And I said, well, if I stay where I'm at, what pay raise would I get? And it was like 10%. I said, great, because you're doing such a wonderful job. And he says, but we really want to promote you to the next level engineer. And I said, well, what would my pay raise be then? And it would be 2% because you're at the bottom of the pool and we don't know how well you perform at your new pay grade. Would any of my duties or responsibilities or any of my activities change when I get promoted? Uh, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that's a whole the other podcast where people get internal employ- employees get frustrated when they have to sort of, you know, prove it over and over again. Well, you have to go at the bottom because you have to go at the bottom. But if some when they hire an ex, you know another employee who might have a similar background for some reason, it's okay to put them straight into, you know, higher yeah. in, in, the, yeah. in the structure. You know, <laughs> higher up. That's that's. I think that's one of the we don't talk about that enough. Why? That's why a lot of employees move from organization to organization. It appears as if the only time that they truly get valued in many cases, when they're having that interview because the employer fears losing that candidate if they don't actually have that conversation. They just don't fear the internal promotion um, or the effects of not internally promoting appropriately. But that's, again, that's a whole difference. That's all in the podcast. Yeah, we can come back to that. But anyway, I I don't know, Chris, if we hit the mark on here, is that how do you attribute worth to a, a reliability or what are we worth? Mm-hmm. To me, it's it's it, our worth is tied with our ability to make change, to influence things, to help the organization create the products they were trying to create with the reliability and availability targets, maintainability targets that they were trying to do, and see how important hitting those things are to customer satisfaction, to marketing, to all these other aspects of it. And I think by popping your head up out of the out of your cubicle and saying, well, where does where does this information go? What is actually of, of use for us to make a difference and, and achieve these goals? Um, and well, that's not taught in school uh, all that often. So we got to help people understand that, you know, we're not there just because somebody said, woke up and said, hey, we need a reliability person here today. No, it's because you have the potential to add a lot of value to the organization and to your customers. And so recognize that. Well, I think one thing is, is that if you can't, if you don't know why you're valuable to the organization, don't expect your your employer 
to uh, to do that for you. Um, if you if you yep. can't understand how you add value, then don't get upset when you don't feel valued. <laughs> that's, uh, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's on you. Yeah. Now it's it, so I think that's the gist of this podcast. Is you got to raise your own awareness and recognize when it makes a difference, and then you know make sure others know it. It's it, and share the successes and you know. Uh, but make sure that the the connections of what you're doing actually resonate with, oh, that's why that good outcome occurred. Oh, okay. I'm glad you're here, Chris. That's a great job, you know. <laughs> and then you can say that eh, pay raise. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that is, that's, you, it's funny how that doesn't work all the time. You get a CRE no. certification and you expect this big pay raise. And I'm like, well, get back to work. Go show no. show me what you actually do can do. But that this, but there you go. I mean, that's the, if you have a CRE and you're applying for a new job, statistically, it's been shown that you will most likely, most likely be able to interview for positions that have higher salaries. That's one yeah. of the real issues you have when you're an internal employee. Yeah. No, I guess we got to come back with another podcast yeah. on this. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, you know, and you got some ideas of, you know, what are you worth or you want to share how you, consider what your your impact has been or your value has been your your worth is let us know head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash sor and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us chris and i and the other hosts are available through linkedin and through our about pages and um yeah this was all sparked by a conversation that that reminded me of you know a a a, a poor person caught in this bureaucracy that valued her at $28 an hour. It was like, okay. And she was, in my mind, just her one hour presentation was priceless. It, it started a conversation in the organization that would not have happened otherwise. And it helped right. move the culture along. It was great. Um, so next time I saw her, I bought her a cup of coffee. So we were even. So anyway, thanks, Chris. Talk to you later. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.